Welcome to the Journey to Justice podcast. This is episode 19 of our Economic Injustice series, where we explore individual and collective action for economic justice in the UK and dive deep into causes of wealth inequality. In this episode, our speakers talk about challenging the hostile environment for young migrants and about young people's opportunities and futures. You'll hear from Dr. Charlotte McPherson, who is currently working with King's College London on a project looking at the barriers to young people's opportunities. She discusses what makes a society economically just, the effects of COVID-19 on people already experiencing poverty, in-work poverty and the lack of guaranteed income that comes with the gig economy, the importance of a living wage, work, education and the urgency to address the cultural devaluation of young people. My name is Charlotte uh, McPherson. Um, I am currently working at King's College London um, on a project um, looking at young people's opportunities, um, barriers and opportunities for young people who don't go on to university. Um, And this is kind of the latest in a long line of research that I've done with young people um, since, since I was able to, since I was first given the opportunity to do independent research. Um, My interests lie in how young people um, are faring in the UK um, structurally, so how they're getting on economically, um, but also how they feel their lives are going, how they feel about their lives and their futures. Um, Something that I'm really passionate about, um, particularly um, in terms of social justice, the sense I get from my research is that young people are not experiencing social justice in the UK and that that's not acceptable. Um, So that's what drives me and, and motivates my work. Yeah, I think to me, an economically just society is fundamentally about equality of opportunity. Um, It's about everybody having the opportunity to access um, a decent life. Um, And this depends entirely pretty much on a society being set up to have an opportunity structure, um, a social security system, uh, social policy and a distribution of wealth and resources that supports that, that's grounded in fairness and equality and everybody kind of having a meaningful shot Um, at at attaining a decent life. Um, I think what's interesting and disappointing about the UK is that it's very much marketed like that. It's marketed as being a place of equality. Um, We see that in terms of meritocracy, for example. We're promoted very heavily as having an education system that delivers that meritocratic promise. Um, It doesn't matter where you come from. If you work hard, you can be whatever you want to be. Um, And yeah, we know sadly that 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 is not the case um, in the UK, um, which is ravaged with inequalities. Um, And just some research that's come out in the the last couple of days has really, really highlighted how far away the UK is from uh, that meritocratic ideal. And, you know, we know that billionaires have amassed greater wealth during the pandemic, for example. But massive research from Joseph Rowntree Foundation published the other day um, shows that destitution has increased by 52% in the last two years. So those two things coexisting um, really is kind of a testament to, to the level of problems with economic injustice, I think, in the UK. Yeah, um, so it's it's a study that's been going on for a long time. It's called Destitution in the UK. I'm not sure if you've heard of it. Um, but what they do is, yeah, they, they carry out massive surveys and um, interviews with people across the UK in all different parts of the UK. Um, and they report on it annually. And it's just, just been released their most recent findings. And what's really interesting is that this, this research, the, the current um, one that they've just presented on, was collected before the pandemic. 
Um, so these findings are really shocking in the sense that um, even before this pandemic struck, this is the rise in destitution in the UK. And that's something that I'm really keen to stress uh, in the research that, that I've been doing myself is that yes, COVID has had a huge role in driving economic injustice, socioeconomic inequalities, but this has been a problem that's been getting markedly worse in the UK before um, the pandemic came along. So in answer to, to your question about what we might expect from the pandemic, um, yeah, I don't think anything good um, for the people who were already struggling. But what we see with COVID is it's also tipped people that were maybe on the edge of destitution um, into destitution and into, into quite deep poverty. Um, but yeah, I think COVID should be understood as something that's made something that was already bad even worse. Um, yeah, I'm not sure if... Uh, absolutely not. Uh, no, no way. Um, I think... I don't know. I, I think the obvious the obvious case is Amazon that we all we all look at. I actually had a personal experience with Amazon numerous years ago now, um, where I went for a job interview there um, when I was an undergraduate, and it was absolutely horrendous. Um, the conditions, even in the interview, um, we were given numbers. Um, I was asked to pee in a box. They took a swab of my cheek. Um, they took like a mug shot of me. Um, it's just it's a horrible um, working environment and then that's before you even get to the pay you know which is minimum wage and zero hour contracts and things like that and then you have a business owner of Amazon who's you know almost just inconceivably you know rich it's beyond our imagination the kind of numbers um, and his wealth uh, so no ab absolutely I do not think that it's um, moral um, to have billionaires in, in a society as ravaged with inequalities as it is where we have people who are destitute, people who can't afford to eat, heat, um, have homes. Um, no, I think there's something very, very wrong um, with that. Um, there are very many, um, but so I'll focus on a few. I think that economic justice in the UK is, is driven by entrenched inequalities that have been kind of set in motion um, for, for a long period of time and have just become ingrained. Um, so you can look to, to big sort of things like deindustrialization, for example, and how this has kind of progressively undermined the ability for people to leave school and enter jobs that are, um, you know, de decently paid, they're secure, and that they can, you know, feasibly do for, for um, a lifelong career. And you can look at the kind of jobs that have replaced those um, jobs. And these are, you know, very precarious, poorly paid jobs in the service sector, for example. Um, and this has really eroded the possibility of income security and kind of social mobility for huge swathes of the population. So this progressive kind of destabilization of the labor market to the point where work no longer offers kind of the same kind of protection against poverty as it used to. You know, in fact, you know, in work poverty is now at a record high in the UK. Again, this is research that came out this year, but was conducted before the pandemic. Another example of how things, you know, have been getting really, really um, bad for a long time in the UK before this, before the pandemic came and made it even worse. You can also look at um, neoliberal policymaking and the effects that that's had. Um, you can see this, the kind of embedment of this idea of personal responsibility, the idea that the state isn't responsible. You are as a, as a person, you need to pull yourself up. And the pressure that puts on individuals um, and what that ignores, you know, skyrocketing living costs and the unaffordable nature of housing, um, tax breaks for the rich, <laughs> cuts to social security, just really um, 
dreadful sort of combination of events, so socio-structural change, but also bad policymaking and governance, um, which has had a huge role in driving economic injustice in the UK. And I think you can look sort of most obviously at the coalition government and things getting a lot worse from 2010 onwards. For example, there's a graph of um, the number of people using food banks. And right after 2010, it just absolutely um, skyrockets. Um, what they did um, with these austerity policy measures and so on was, is terrible and it's really obvious to see. But if you kind of look back, um, as, I did, as I did in my PhD, if you look back to say the 1970s, um, this kind of policy making and these kind of policy messages of, of personal responsibility, the big society, cutting um, public, ser uh, public services, cutting benefits, giving tax breaks to the rich, th this has been going on for a really, really long time. And it's just solidified and it's created a, a kind of environment where we don't have sympathy for poor people. We don't have some, we have this kind of hostility towards people who are in bad situations. So people who are unable to find work, people who are immigrants. Um, and it's just fostered um, a horrible environment for you to be vulnerable in the UK. So you have st structural things going on, policy things, but it's kind of created for me anyway, uh, an atmosphere around economic injustice, it's really, really difficult to break and shift. Um, yeah. <laughs> yeah, so I, kind of going back to what I was just saying, there has just been this gradual shift in um, responsibility for, for um, um, prosperity, but also responsibility for when things go wrong and, and for when you're experiencing poverty. So we now live in a, in a political climate and have done for a really long time um, where the blame is very much on people themselves to, to sort out their lives. Uh, and, you know, it, it's not just conservatives either. It was Tony Blair as well, you know, rights and responsibilities, uh, a hand up, not a hand out. Um, this kind of rhetoric is really powerful, not just in terms of it underpinning policy that's really punitive, um, but also in the sense that it, it kind of fosters a mindset in the population as well, where, where you have poor people with jobs resenting poor people who don't have jobs, um, et cetera. And we, we kind of judge people based on that. We're a very judgmental society, I feel, um, at the moment. Um, and that allows economic injustice to become ingrained and it distracts attention away from the structural causes um, of this poverty because poverty and economic injustice are structural problems. They're not personal problems. They're, they should not be considered individual responsibility. And to go back to the point you're making about food banks and how it's not necessarily people who don't have jobs um, that, that are using them, or, or certainly not just them, it's people increasingly who have jobs or a number of jobs. And that's something I found in research that I conducted during lockdown about food insecurity with young people. Um, a lot of a lot of the young people I spoke to, probably about eighty percent of them had jobs, um, but they were consistently having to go to food banks, or having to accept um, food parcels from their parents, or um, loans of money from friends, etc., um, to get by. Because, and it's simply because um, the wages that they're paid. Um, are, are insufficient to meet the living costs associated, particularly so the young people I spoke to are living in Edinburgh and London, you know, very expensive cities. Um, and it's because they don't get enough hours. Um, so it goes back to the point I made previously about the destabilization of work. 
right? Work is no longer a guaranteed protection against poverty. However, it's still marketed as such by the government. So if you look at the sort of schemes that they introduce, um, they're all kind of workfare. So if you get a job, everything will be all right. It's all about employability, but it doesn't address the kind of um, problem that even with a job um, and increasingly people in poverty have jobs. Um, the research is consistently showing this. Um, it's not enough. It's not enough to get by and to afford basic things like food, heating, housing. Um, so yeah, there's serious, serious problems um, with that in the UK. Yeah, very, very important. Um, so we have a living wage. Um, I don't know if it's, if it's always sufficient and it's certainly not universally applied or available. Um, so I know that they've just managed, I think, to change it so that young people can access it at the age of 23 now. So it was previously only eligible for, for those 25 and above, um, which is a step in the right direction, um, but certainly, certainly not enough. Um, so yeah, a living wage is extremely important. If you look at some of the national minimum wage rates, um, and again, sorry, I, I tend to focus mostly on young people because that's where, where my research focus has always been. I mean, they're, they're really, really low. Um, and they're based on an assumption that, that young people or anybody can remain in the parental home. They can rely on parental finances and so on. But for a lot of young people, that is just absolutely not the case. Um, and they're facing the same living expenses as an older person, um, but yeah, with, with significantly reduced income. So a living wage, I think, is really important, but one that's been comprehensively tested um, and is much more widely available um, and, and kind of offered by employers as well. Yeah, um, so I think you can look at policies and interventions like the living wage, um, for example, that would, that would be really helpful. I think along with that, revisions to rates and entitlements of social security is really important. Um, a closer regulation as well of key drivers of economic injustice. So for example, the, the private rental sector is largely unregulated and it's gotten completely out of control. Um, I'm sure in London as well, but certainly here in Edinburgh, it's just completely out of control. Um, and it's, it's barely monitored, it's barely regulated. So that is really, really important. Regulation as well around things like zero hour contracts. Um, th these again are, are things that particularly affect young people. Um, so you can look at measures like that. I think there's also a need for more activism, more of the kind of work that you're doing um, that puts economic injustice under the spotlight. Um, I think it's just really, really important. But kind of beyond policy measures and activism, I, I think we just need to think about economic justice really holistically. Um, we need to think about it as something that's not just about um, economics or that doesn't think about economics in isolation from say cultural factors or political factors. Um, and this is something that I, I did with my PhD with young people around social justice. Um, I don't know if you want me to, to speak on that. Yeah, <laughs> okay. Um, so what I did was I carried out research with young people from low income backgrounds in two parts of Scotland. And I was interested in whether they were experiencing social justice from my perspective as a, a researcher who kind of is familiar with labor market statistics and so on, but more importantly, from their own perspective, you know, were they feeling like they were experiencing justice? And the theory that I used for that was Nancy Fraser's. And um, so she has a three part theory of social justice. So for her, social justice is about economic justice, cultural justice and political justice. And you can't experience social justice without um, justice across all three of those pillars. 
um, which are interconnected with one another. Um, so what I found in my research was that the young people, and I think this is true for, for most young people, young people don't tend to experience economic justice. Um, they're paid significantly less than older people. They're overrepresented in these kind of zero hours and um, precarious jobs. They're also significantly more likely to be unemployed. Um, they've got lower rates of entitlement to social security. So for example, full-time students are not eligible for, for universal credit, um, which has been devastating um, during the pandemic. But then culturally, they don't fare very well either. They're denigrated as a group um, generally in the UK. Um, they're culturally devalued um, as having a poor work ethic and being immature, not to be trusted and so on. And then politically, they also don't have access to adequate representation. They're, they generally are not involved in decision making. They're often marginalised from the political process and they don't have a lot of access to voice. And what Fraser's theory allows you to do is to kind of connect the dots between those things um, and to recognize how these political and cultural issues and disadvantages feed into economic injustice experienced by a group, in this case, um, young people. So because of their kind of cultural devaluation, that, that's reflected in how they're devalued in the labor market. And um, they're not trusted, they're not seen as a kind of equitable employee, so they're able to be paid less, for example. Um, and they can suffer sort of punitive policy in ways that would maybe stir up a public outcry if they were um, implemented for other groups. Um, and then politically, because they, they have such kind of low political currency, when young people do organize politically, it tends to be dismissed as um, meaningless, uh, mindless activism, opportunism. You see that with the London riots, for example or their lack of political representation means that their economic injustice just goes unaddressed. And I think that's what you see. Um, so I think it's important to think about economic justice in a really um, holistic way that recognizes how it plays into cultural devaluation, stigma against certain groups um, and political marginalization and voicelessness of certain groups in society as well. And um, so I think that that is really important. <clears throat> Yeah, I think at the moment there's a lot of um, activity around economic justice, um, again, among young people. Um, so at the moment, um, students, for example, are <clears throat> organising a huge um, strike against paying rent. Um, so that's happening and thousands um, of students um, across the UK are refusing to pay rent because of how they've been treated, mistreated by universities, the government, student accommodation landlords. And that's already getting a lot of media attention um, and hopefully some traction um, given how poorly they have been treated and all of this. Um, I'm also familiar with a lot of the work that's been done by the Equality Trust, um, again with young people. So I think since about 2018, they've run this programme called um, Young Equality Campaigners. Um, and it's lots of different initiatives. And if you look on their website, I mean, it's just fantastic outputs of young people kind of meditating on their experiences of socioeconomic um, inequalities, including economic injustice. And um, they've kind of created exhibitions about this, which are available digitally. Um, they, they kind of have narratives where, where they're talking about their own experiences and reflecting on each other's. Um, but they've also been able to have a, a direct impact on policy in some cases. So they've met with um, the UN Special Rapporteur on Extreme Poverty, 
and human rights, and they had a direct influence in some of the recommendations that he made in his report back to the UN. So that was really fantastic. And then in my previous role, I worked in a philanthropic organization um, for a short time. And I was aware of a lot of um, initiatives where third sector organizations would go to communities really badly affected by deprivation. And they would work with individuals and families there to kind of equip them with resources to overcome debt, um, to get away from kind of parasitic lending towards ethical lending and to get them access to benefits that they were entitled to, but were unaware of. Um, and what I really liked about that work was that it didn't have that sort of um, mantra of resilience around it and this idea that um, you are responsible, you know, get yourself economically resilient. It, it was very much based on the premise that these people are being structurally, structurally marginalized and we're going to connect them to the support that they need to get over this. But I think <laughs> that I want to kind of add a caveat and just say all of these things are brilliant, you know, activism, um, working to build economic self-sufficiency, expressing voices, um, protests, but they cannot um, be a substitute um, for the government taking responsibility and taking action at a kind of substantive structural level. And to kind of think otherwise is to, is to let the government off, essentially, with their responsibility for this. Um, so yeah, it's important to, to always keep that in mind, I think. I Yeah, I think that it's this, this whole notion of a big society, right? That's been, again, like I was saying, if you look back to the 1970s and you just see this thread running through and it's becoming progressively intense. It's all about the shifting of responsibility from the state onto citizens um, to take responsibility for social problems, um, their own problems, this idea of the government stepping back, reducing their level of support, and then the, you know, the voluntary sector and, and people will, will step in. Um, I think that a lot of it has, has been um, engineered by huge cuts to local authority budgets and public services, which has just necessitated charitable giving of food banks and so on. Um, and again, it's all kind of underpinned by this um, rhetoric of a kind of undeserving poor, if you like. Um, and no, we're not having anything to do with it. It's, we're gonna be really punitive as a policy frame. And then, yeah, um, depend on things like food banks. Um, charities, uh, initiatives to step in. Um, so yeah, I, I think that it's been happening for a really long time. Um, but the fact that we've got to a point where things like food banks are, you know, have, have red tape ceremonies um, is just morally reprehensible and um, yeah, just, just awful. And I worry about this um, post-COVID, if we ever get to a post-COVID time, um, you know, the government has had to be really intensively involved um, this year. I mean, there's just not been an option. But what I what I worry about is them sort of withdrawing support really, really quickly. Um, and yet the, the capacity for for the voluntary sector and for people to step in on a scale like this is just it's just not possible. So I, I do really worry about the ramifications of of this kind of thinking that we have in the UK. Yeah. Yeah, I think COVID has been devastating. Um, I think, you know, thousands, thousands, millions of people have lost incomes, they've lost their jobs um, at very short notice. Um, and remember that a lot of people um, that this is disproportionately affected, they, they don't have savings to insulate them against something like this, a shock like this. Um, and there's also this very little sense of how and when things will normalize or become more stable again. 
Um, and I think that what really is worrying about the COVID thing is that generally with recessions, as you know, and you have this sort of the short term effects, but actually things get much worse further down the line. Um, usually, you know, months, but even years after the fact when, you know, things like austerity measures are brought in to claw back some of the, the money. And I think what's really alarming is the short term consequences of this pandemic are so bad already that it's, it's horrible to even imagine what the labour market is going to look like or the policy frame is going to look like a year from now. Um, I think <clears throat> that the point about COVID that I want to make, though, is like, and I, I, that I've already sort of spoken to um, earlier, is that what it's done, it has thrown a spotlight, I think, on economic injustice in the UK that predates the pandemic. Um, it's exacerbated inequalities that, were, that already existed. Um, and I think what we, we need to be really mindful of, and cer certainly in initiatives and activism and so on, is just making sure that the government don't hide behind that don't hide behind the suggestion that, well, things were fine before the pandemic, they're just bad because of the pandemic and things will get normal again really soon. And that's just not the case. Um, so I think COVID has had sort of two effects, if you like. So it's caused all this, this, this uh, loss of income, job losses, et cetera, but it's also thrown a spotlight and in some ways quite a helpful spotlight. And I don't like to speak about COVID in a kind of positive way, but if you can take anything from it, I think what it's done is it's thrown into sharp relief these inequalities and how vulnerable and proximate people were to poverty and kind of financial ruin um, before it came along. So I think that that creates some fertile ground for, for activism and, and, and good work to be done, um, but also clearly very difficult and challenging times for the people affected. Yeah, I think just um, to do it, to, to get involved. Like I say, I don't want to, to frame anything positive out of COVID other than it is a really good opportunity, I think, to talk about economic injustice. It's under a spotlight that it's not usually under. Um, there's a lot of public solidarity, I think, at the moment, maybe more so than usual. Um, so you can see, you know, with Marcus Rashford's campaign, that essentially, you know, it just forced it through, it forced the government's hand and the swell of support from the people behind it, obviously his, his actions as well. I think we're living in a moment that is extremely difficult, um, but it's also um, an opportunity um, for the government to be under quite substantial scrutiny um, and to be held accountable. So I think if you're thinking about campaigning around economic injustice, then, then do it, look up what's going on already, create communities, join communities, um, and just yeah, find out how you can get involved and express your voices because they're more likely to be heard now, I think, than they have um, for a very long time. So I think the gig economy is essentially where you are not on a contract as such, you are paid for gigs, you're paid for jobs. Um, so for example, an Uber driver is paid per drive um, and uh, delivery drivers, et cetera. So you're, you're paid on, on the basis of the amount of gigs or jobs or tasks that you do. Um, so there's flexibility in that, but there's also a lot of disadvantage. You don't have guaranteed hours. Um, you don't have a lot of the protections that you would have if you have a, a contract. Um, so um, it's 
it's it's um, advertised as something that can fit into your life, that you can have a lot of control over, and um, that's flexible, that suits your needs, where you can be your own boss. Um, but in reality, for most people, it's a stressful, precarious experience, and um, where actually you have very little control um, over over your earnings and working conditions, and very little rights as well. The gig economy. Um, is just one of several ways in which young people are disadvantaged in the labour market um, and are, are exploited really by employers um, for their sort of flexibility, assumptions about their flexibility, their willingness to do anything, their ability to be physical. Um, certainly in the research that I've done, I've you know heard a lot of stories from young people in the gig economy, but also just um, working in um, on zero hour contracts where they have no certainty about their income, um, I have um, heard stories from young people with children who have no idea what they're going to earn that week, um, who are juggling three jobs, barely seeing their child, um, because they, they just have no other way to kind of, they're sort of patching together full-time incomes, um, which is what we all kind of need to survive, um, but it's just not available. So a lot of the time what you hear from the government is you just need to get out there, you need to get employable. The problem with young people in employment is that they don't have the right skills, um, they don't have the right character, they don't have the right work ethic. Um, but really that's not the case with the young people I speak to, they're the most skilled generation that we've ever had. Um, they're the most qualified, they're the most educated um, of any generation of young people. Um, but they are completely unable, most of them, to find jobs that are secure, um, that have employee protections, that offer a decent standard of life, and that offer a routine and a, a normal work-life balance that people in the gig economy generally do not have. Um, and yeah, it's just, it's, it's really unacceptable. And I think that the reason that it's allowed to go on and it's been allowed to kind of proliferate goes back to Fraser's argument about cultural devaluation. Um, young people just generally are um, devalued um, as a group and there just isn't the same level of sympathy for young people as there are for other groups in society. Um, so yeah, it's something that needs to urgently be addressed. I think COVID again has shone a spotlight on this. You know, I had a lot of young people in the research that I con conducted during lockdown who were kind of excluded really from the protections of the furlough scheme because they didn't have any employee protections. So essentially when, when the pandemic struck that their companies just were able to let them go, they, they didn't have anything in their contract to, to protect them against that in the way that you, know, you or I might have in ours. Um, and, and that is something that has been really under acknowledged as has um, the way that furlough has not applied to young people in the same way as it has to other people. You know, young people generally are on zero hours or part-time hours, but they work a lot of overtime to make up to a full-time wage. That overtime generally has not been covered by furlough. So they've been getting furlough, but say 10 hours um, when they're used to working 40. Um, so these are things that have not really been picked up on um, kind of in national conversations and protests. And that I think is really, really important. Um, yeah. Um, yeah, I've, I've seen um, delivery drivers take some serious chances on the road and it's because they're rushing. They have a massive list. They're paid by delivery um, and they're, they're just pushed to the limit. A horrible way to live and a, a horrible model that's been imported um, into this country. And, and, and as you say, um, has become normalized. You know, we don't tend to think about it. Um, people don't tend to, to think about what's going on to enable, um, you know, as you say, your McDonald's to be delivered at whatever time of night. Um, yeah, absolutely. It's very concerning. 
And it, it all comes back to that destabilization of the labor market, which I think is so pivotal to um, understanding economic justice in the UK today. And it's been underway for a long time, but it's taking shape in different ways with the gig economy, um, for example, um, kind of at the moment. You will hear from Chrisan and Kimberly from the organisation We Belong, who challenged the hostile environment and its impacts on young migrants. They tell us how they appeal to common values of politicians across parties to bridge political divides. They raise awareness of the issues, telling their stories and being strategic, equipping and galvanising young people to become change makers. By making their action constituency-led and being persistent, We Belong were eventually invited to speak to the Home Affairs Select Committee in the UK Parliament to give evidence of the impact of the hostile environment on their lives. So the issue being addressed was the hostile environment and the restrictive policies introduced for non-British or non-settled migrants in the UK. And um, the young people We Belong supports were brought to the UK as children and the hostile environment um, impacts their attainment and ability to contribute um, to society in a myriad of ways. And these young people, um, predominantly from working class backgrounds, were entering adulthood with a massive financial burden um, due to the price attached to maintaining their private life um, and their right to stay in the UK. So this economic depravity leads to young people living on the sidelines and unable to further integrate due to all the money, all their money being tied up in the UK's immigration system. We did have a plan and that was to firstly galvanise and mobilise um, young migrants from across the UK who were impacted by the hostile environment in a way that had never been done before. And one of the most effective um, tactics um, that I'm going to focus on today um, is the story of self. And the story of self originates from Marshall Gans, um, who's a key thinker and educator in the community organising field. And he focuses on using this um, as an incredibly useful narrative tool to direct attention to stories um, by letting them take on not only the role of teaching um, us how to act, but inspiring the listener to act and calling the listener to action. So the way in which we use the story of self, we basically drew on our structured plot um, as young migrants, which consisted of the challenge um, we faced so the most common challenge being being blocked from accessing higher education, um, a choice that we made and then the outcome that we experienced as a result of that choice. Um, the point being that um, the challenge engages curiosity and interest in the storyteller. So the choice made and um, the outcome allows room for empathy where the listener sees things from the protagonist's lens. Um, it was a way of us telling our public story in a structured way that would call our listeners to action. So at We Belong, we use the story of self um, as a first confrontation of um, a young person's lived experience. Um, this is the first time that a young person confronts their status and their lived experience at the age of 18. And as we know, stories allow us to express our values um, and as lived experience individuals, um, because of our power to move others um, with the way we should tell our story, it was the it was the initial step that we took to um, 
it was the initial step that we took to basically engage the young person to partake in social change, because not only were we equipping the young person to gain confidence before sharing, um, we influenced that transition moment from where they tell their story and they feel comfortable and they feel empowered to them building community in their journey to becoming proactive change makers by telling their story to other people. Um, and I think a prime example of this would be our literary comic that we collaborated to create with um, Kids, in Need of, um, Kids in Need of Defence UK, Kind UK, who provide um, pro bono legal support. Um, there was also an artist that was involved, um, Asia Alfasi, um, and she had lived experience of being a migrant from Libya. And we also worked with Positive Negatives who create um, creative content um, combined with research. They, I, they adapt stories um, and they turn them into art and advocacy uh, materials um, with the purpose of educating people on social issues. So our, our contribution to this comic, um, we've, um, it basically followed the story of teenagers facing the challenges um, that are confronted by thousands of young people in the UK who are undocumented and have irregular immigration status um, and allowed us to explore those issues in the form of art. So one of our tactics was to appeal to the common values of different politicians. We are, of course, a charity, and so we are uh, politically neutral. And so we were working across different parties to try and raise awareness about the issue. Politics can be so polarizing, but it was important to note for us anyway, having had conversations with different MPs from Liberal Democrats to Conservatives to Labour, that despite different political alignments, um, everyone subscribes to a basic um, human value such as fairness and justice. And so when the government announced yet another increase in the fees that the young people are supposed to pay, we responded by appealing to those values and showing that actually, um, you know, forcing people out of status because of the cost attached will have an impact on their ability to, um, you know, socially integrate and social integration is a, is a key thing. Um, one of the things that we did was appealed visually um, and conveyed those values. And so in the run up to the fees being increased, what we did, we worked with around five young people um, because the key um, narrative that was being built up by the government was that these young people should pay it because they're temporarily in the UK. We were trying to show them actually there's a separate narrative that you should hear. And so what we did was compile a, a book um, of a photo book which basically showed their journey from the time they arrived in the UK as children to them going to school, entering different competitions and being really part of the community. So that really contrasted uh, and that really shows the development of the narrative for the young people owning their narrative to using that as a powerful tool for social change and really appealing to human values. I think those things are really essential. Um, prior to this question, I think it was mentioned what mentioned between young people being eligible to stay in the UK and actually Actually being able to grab that right because of they're being priced out of status and so that's really the gap that we were hoping to fill and um, being a lone voice at the time and young people recognizing that if we don't speak out about this no one else will. Um, I think lived experience is incredibly important because it is at the heart um, of what we do. Um, many of the young migrants that we work with um, ha have not been able to take up their spaces, their hard-earned spaces at university, um, or be able to further um, in terms of employment. 
and sometimes being blocked um, in other streams because of the hostile environment. And it's important to, to have the people who are directly impacted um, by injustice to, to be able to equip them to be able to, to fight that injustice themselves. Um, it's important that we aren't, I mean, uh, fair enough, Chrisanne and I have experienced um, the issue with the hostile environment, but it's important that we also equip the young people that we work with for them to be able to become change makers in their own right. The sense that these young people are being brought um, into the conversations only at the end point or specific trigger points when the adults in the room felt it was necessary for them to share their lived experience. But what we actually recognise is that a lived experience of the immigration system is only one part of that young person's journey and they may have other things to offer as well. So removing the, the, the lens of shame and also removing the lens of vulnerability to seeing lived experience as an asset is really crucial and it accelerates the pace for change. I think it's also about credibility and legitimacy. Um, we, we firmly believe in the quote that if you don't tell your story, someone else will, and you won't like how it's being told. And so I think it, that's what is really important to be in control of that. Um, so the aim of the um, story of self was to, like Chrisanne, just echoing what Chrisanne said, um, to change the narrative towards immigration, um, to empower young migrants to share their story um, in a way that wasn't being done in the media and to raise awareness of injustice that um, they were facing at the hands of the hostile environment. It was really key um, for us as an organization to be that voice to uplift young change makers and influence them in taking proactive um, action within their community to recognize themselves um, as leaders and not just um, victims of their immigration status. Um, so to do this, we worked with people that had more experience in policy, um, but also people that fit our model, um, because we recognise the importance of allyship. Um, but it was really important to get people whose values also um, simulated with our own. So from legal advice organisations to fellow charities such as Quorum, Just for Kids Law, um, Citizens UK, um, I can go on, the list is endless, but um, also MPs who supported our cause um, was really important to just get those different um, arms of society and people that had experience in, and expertise in those areas to support us. We're in it for the long run. It's not gonna happen overnight. It might take months, if not years. And so it's the build up to that. Looking back, you know, the overall aim is to remove the hostile environment, which has a negative impact on young people's ability to work and maintain their status and go to university and live a normal life. We understand that was a top level ask and that was the aim. But moving back from that, how could we do that? And it's about relationship building. I think relationship building is, is something that should be of a primary concern um, and a key objective for any social change agent. Because one of the things you recognize is that injustice is able to persist in society because people aren't aware that this is the case, that this is happening, or this is on an in on an unintentional um you know, consequences, unintended consequences of a policy that was meant to work in a specific way. Um, so that's the key, raising awareness and getting our foot in the door and nurturing those relationships. The second thing that we, we also recognized 
is that the main ally for us was actually the young people. One of our key um, tactics as part of our creative process was to have integrated communications. Um, so it's really important to push that narrative out there, get it into newspapers in whatever creative form, creative form that young people would want. Um, and then we'd match that with physical action. So for example, the um, photo album I mentioned before, we not only did we create a big comms piece about it, and I think it was also written out in The Guardian on our Twitter, etc. What we did, we matched that with a physical action of defiance. So we actually went to the Home Office and presented this um, photo album and made a whole, um, you know, a whole action around it. And it really helps to energize people because visually it, it, it's great, right? You see young people taking their futures, taking their arguments in a visual form and handing it over for someone else to um, really look at. I think the barriers was that the change that we wanted um, had to happen through Parliament and the Parliament, the UK Parliament process is not easily accessible to young people. Um, from the jargon to the bureaucratic processes attached with that environment, um, it made it, it made seeking change more complex. Um, we grew our participation through monthly organized group gatherings um, to get young people together. And we, we created a space for young people to learn and speak openly with no risk of judgment, to get skills in public speaking and any other skills that they would need um, to continue campaigning for the issues that were so close to them. And with our core group um, specifically, we spoke about our campaign plans, our hopes and our fears for the future. At the beginning of our campaigns, when we tried to speak to um, MPs, they almost saw this these cases as isolated, the anomalies. Um, and, and so what we did was presented them that this was a trend. This was a trend up and down the country where these young people are entering adulthood with these issues. Um, and we need to fix it because, you know, we don't want to ruin the potential of these young people. Um, so we also had some difficulties in getting those meetings in the first place. Um, so we recognize that as an organization, even though we were small, we were mighty in the fact that we had gathered all these case studies of young people involved. We had one-to-ones with these young people and we knew where their MPs were based and who their MPs were. So we changed our tactics. So the way in which we overcame the initial pushback and um, not having MPs listen to us is by making it constituent led, right? So we moved it away from a we belong thing to a young person wanting to meet their MP to discuss this project, uh, this issue. And those young people just happened to be part of we belong. Um, so it was constituent led and we were there as support uh, for the young people attending those meetings with them. And we really overcame the initial hurdles by being persistent and initiating those conversations or to discuss on a human level before asking, um, uh, before asking for a policy change. Um, so our meetings also were followed uh, with politicians were followed by a photo opportunity, which uh, we later published on our social media feeds. Um, and it showed progress for us as a campaign and also for the young person who were invo involved. But it also sent a message to other politicians that we are proactive and they should listen to us because their colleagues have also listened to us. And so it's like, um, you know, you see other people doing it, then clearly they have something legitimate to speak about. And so there's a specific appeal and that really links back to the importance of integrating comms within your campaigning and advocacy. 
it's really empowering for them because it, it's it's the first time almost that someone in such a position of power has truly sat down and listened to them. Um, you know, sometimes meetings went well, sometimes it didn't, and it was a learning curve for us all. But I think what we've recognized um, looking and tracking the journey of the young people is that they've said in the past that two months ago or a year ago, I never would have thought that I'm sitting here and telling someone my story and being part of this change. And so they really do take pride in that. And it really does help in other aspects of their lives as well when they're they're being confronted with someone who is in a position of power. Um, power is also something I think really should be um, explored. A lot of the times when you go through a problem, you see yourself as vulnerable. And I think that vulnerability needs to be flipped upside down and seeing it as a strength. So as part of one of our leadership trainings, we actually do see vulnerability as a strength. The idea that you're using your position of, um, you know, where you lacked to gain something more, and that gain was uh, developing a relationship. So overall, over the past you know, a couple of years, we've had over 40 meetings with MPs, um, constituent led, um, and it's it's very positive. And, and one of the key things for us is to actually, prior to the meeting with those MPs, go through things with the young people and almost have a role play of how things could turn out. And the second thing for us was in the meeting, always have a follow-up so that a young person doesn't feel like they've just come, they share their story and there's, there's nothing else that, that's gonna happen after that. And post the meeting, we'd have a debrief. So then we assess, how are you feeling? Because it's really important that we're in touch with how things make us feel. Because for a very long time with social injustice, people may have uh, suppressed those emotions and we want them to be able to freely discuss it. And that's part of the empowerment piece. The impact has been huge. It has been massive um, to the point that um, the benefits um, are ongoing. Um, so we, like Rissan mentioned, we have um, our leadership training program um, which is a bespoke tailored program aimed to create future young leaders where, you know, we equip them with that confidence and those, those skills and tools to speak out against injustice. But it's not just the young people within that leadership program. Um, it trickles to all the young people in the wider network um, and in We Belong's overall core membership. Um, our core membership of young people has increased each year and our overall membership of um, young people that we've supported um, has increased. So we've worked with over 1,300 young people and um, we've managed to solidify um, and foster those relationships within the local communities um, from you know, schools and colleges. Um, we've managed to solidify um, a strong relationship um, where we managed to raise awareness and empower young people at different schools and colleges across the UK and not just London-based. Growth and organisational expansion over time, but also most importantly, um, an increase in the number of cross-party support. Um, I remember years ago, um, it started with one of us getting a meeting with our MP to discuss our specific cases and how these our lives are being impacted and then to this uh, fast forward to 2020 when we were actually being invited by the home affairs select committee to give actual evidence to um, the, the MPs that were really involved and then that also um, led to a meeting that we had with the, the um, immigration minister Kevin Foster so really climbing up you know looking at how we can really uh, engage people in positions of power 
and hold on to those relationships and hold them to account. Since 2018, um, we've been running um, a, a campaign called Freeze Our Fees, where we're telling the government, don't increase the immigration fees for, um, for, for people that have to apply um, without uh, assessing the impact on these young people. Um, unfortunately, they haven't assessed the impact yet, but they have frozen those fees for the last two years. So this actually does help with people planning their lives and knowing how much they have to save up um, um, to apply for their, their renewal of status. So I'd say overall, it's going really well and those tactics are lasting, but we are always looking for inspiration um, to improve our, our tactics and our approach. Use Instagram and Twitter and Facebook, um, pretty much all of the main ones. And um, the way in which we do this is we create um, different types of content because we recognize that um, not all young people are, um, I guess not all young people learn in the same way. Um, so in terms of sharing, we do share our stories through um, a segment called Status Stories, where we do interviews with young people who are in the core group, um, who we've worked with to, to share their story publicly. Um, we also do blogs um, with young people. We post those as well on social media. But it's, I think it's not just one form of media with, we use, and it's not just one form of communication. Um, it is a mixture. So from blogs to um, videos to quotations um, is a range of things that come come into place. The diagnostic tool I would say is um, the importance of mirroring um, and so when I say mirroring is the idea that we present a video on, on Instagram for example where we're very much engaged and those stories that are being told young people are able to see themselves in those stories and that's how they were able to say actually I've been through this or someone I know has been through this and that's how they really spread the message. Um, Kimberly just mentioned it's not one tactic and I agree because if we weren't doing the activities offline we won't be able to show showcase them online. Um, and I think right now it's really important to address the fact that we're currently in a pandemic and everything has gone digital. And actually that's really benefited our, um, um, our engagement with young people. Um, we've now managed to move everything that we used to do, the, the community gathering and the one-to-one -one meetings online. Uh, and that's really important. But I guess the worry that we have is that not everyone has the same level of in internet connectivity and not everyone has access. You know, tech poverty is a real thing. So moving forward, we really want to ensure that even though we're employing the tools of social media, that it's still accessible and we're able to reach the people that we, we need to reach. The first thing, be true to your organization's values. Um, I think values are incredibly important. Um, Chrisanne touched on one earlier, boldness, um, integrity, um, empathy, lived experience. Um, those are some of our values, but be true to your organization's values and embed them in everything that you do. Um, and aim for meaningful participation um, as an accelerator for social change and overall organizational learning i feel great um i feel empowered um because of the change that i've seen from the time i was a young person that was supported by we belong to actually being a practitioner and working um as a we belong staff um, and i think i feel great because the tactics that we've used have not only been instrumental in supporting the the current young people that we have, um, young people that have come from the past, but the tactics we've used have laid the foundations um, for young people that will follow um, after us. 
I think our aim is that um, once we have supported the young person, they can move on and um, no approach is perfect um, as well. And I, I think we do recognize that although no approach is perfect, we do appreciate um, all the lessons that we've learned and we continue to be inspired by other people um, as well as other movements. The general public can really support us by by listening to us um, and listening to our stories. Um, so that can be from watching our videos or reading an article um, from We Belong. But um, at the moment, um, so we've got different projects in which we run. So with regards to the equal access, um, the general public um, in terms of the schools and the colleges and the universities, they can support us in sharing the information packs and the guidance that we create um, to, to have that early prevention for young people who are at that point of accessing higher education um, before they get to that point um, to make sure that information um, is readily available and it's widely available, but also just speaking positively about um, immigration. Um, Chrisanne touched on earlier the idea of um, shame being attached to um, immigration and status. And this is something that we are really um, keen on change, continuing changing the narrative and um, making people recognize that um, the immigration status is not the person, um, it is a part of the person. For more podcasts in this series, search for Journey to Justice on any podcast platform. If you're interested in education for economic justice or community action, visit www.economicinjustice.org.uk to make the most of our resources.